Today on Blind Insights, gaming for growth. Dungeons and Dragons, it isn't just fun sitting in the dark, it actually helps you grow. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights. joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very excited, sitting in the new studio. Do you know what your potential D&D character name will be? No. Okay. <laughs> well, you ponder what you might call your character as something, you know, magnificent and random. We're also joined by uh, special guest Peter Thompson. Thank you for joining us, Peter. Oh, uh, you're very welcome. And it is, uh, let me just roll my uh, my D20 here. Uh, it is a, a apparently a pleasure to be here. <laughs> oh, now I can start talking about the dice man and we can send this to the dark straight away. <laughs> Don't do that, David. Leave it alone. And Dungeons and Dragons, not the dice man. <laughs> our, our white knight of um, D&D uh, uh, glory. Thank you for joining us, Tom Buzzenshaw. Thank you. Uh, I also feel the need to roll my dice, but none of them have very nice things to say about me, so I shan't be rolling any dice at this stage. <laughs> but it's a pleasure nonetheless to be here. <laughs> Come on, aristocratic surname, all groovy. <laughs> Well, um, I have to say I've wanted to do something, uh, some kind of podcast about D&D for a little while because I find it fascinating from, I guess, a slightly educated outside perspective, I would say, an observer. Um, but uh, Peter, thank you very much for pushing this. I'm, I'm glad that we finally get to do it. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, D&D is uh, super cool. And uh, to get together with you all and um, bump heads and talk about it um, for a little while, I think is uh, pretty rad as well. So to give it some context, I'm by far the oldest here, so let's go back to what I remember from between, say, the ages of 12 and about 16, which is when my exposure was, when it seems like in Australia, so that would have made it about 83 to 87, 1983 to 1987. It felt like Dungeons & Dragons was very new in Australia at that point. Was that its mega growth period in the 80s? Probably thereabouts. I'm not the right person to talk okay. to in terms of history, uh, but it's definitely been around for, I think, a little bit longer than people give it credit for. So it's at least that long, probably a bit longer. But I remember it being very new to everyone. No one seemed to know any more than anyone else by more than about six months. It, it reached cultural significance, at least in the 80s, because that's how it's often depicted. So Yeah, and that's how it sort of made it into uh, Stranger Things. Yes. Mm. You know, where the monster out of it sort of is the, the monster out of the game they're playing with, painted all the miniatures. So to go back to my memories, what I loved about it was it was one of the few things I could do as a teenager with any other group of teenagers where it was a level playing field about me being blind. Because mm. mm. instantly it came down to people's ability uh, to plan, think, work as a group, imagine those with the best imagination could sort of outline the, the best way to sort of perceive what was going to happen next or what we should do as a group. So it was a wonderful leveller. And I sort of remember being a bit disappointed when computer gaming came along because in a sense, you know, blind people went from being very included in gaming that could be done together with a group of people that levelled everyone to suddenly blind people were excluded again. I'm like, humph, bad computer games. <laughs> so when I don't even remember who said it first, whether it was Peter or Tim, made the point that 
people were still playing Dungeons and Dragons. I'm like, fantastic. People remember that there's people and they can be in the same room with them. Oh, this that's is funny. awesome. I, I had it in my head for some reason, David, that you had not played before. No, no, okay. man, played long before any of you were alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, okay, well then I guess we don't need to um, labor over explaining it to um, any of us here, but it might be a good place to start to explain to some of our listeners who haven't ever played Dungeons and Dragons before and might think it's a board game or it's a like a, a set campaign or, or something. Mm. Um, it would be good to maybe explain some of those rules. Um, I, I want to throw it to Tom to begin with, if that's okay. Yeah, for sure. So Dungeons & Dragons is a weird thing. The only essentials you need are kind of a set of dice and uh, pretty much like a pen, a pencil, and paper. And, of course, your imagination and mm. some friends. So those are the key things. Um, but other than that, you can take it from as little to as much as you'd like. There are pre-built campaigns that you can take and narrate and take characters through or you can just have a saturday evening with a couple friends and do a really short condensed kind of adventure story that you can make up on the go uh, it's really really quite flexible in that way and i think that's probably why it's still here in terms of uh, tabletop gaming mm. yeah because it, it guarantees that if people have got limited time and limited resources they can still get hooked oh big time yeah you don't have to have blown a ton of money and invested three months to learn to realize you're hooked. Yes. It could be first starting up with two friends or three friends, ideally three at least. That's more fun from memory. Um, that's enough to get started. Definitely, definitely. Uh, I think there's an upper limit. Like I, I would say most of the games I've played in have been from three to five, six people. Anything more than that and you start to detract from people Managing getting, it uh, would start getting really quite complex. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I remember in high school that pretty much all the guys, even the kind of sports playing guys, were interested in having a go at playing D&D and most of the girls were highly sceptical. Is that still the case or has it become a bit more everyone gets involved now? <laughs> uh, I would say it's better now. Excellent. Mm. Yes. It's probably progressed as much as you'd expect to be inclusive with, with everybody. Uh, it's, I mean, I've made a ton of good friends from D&D, both you know, men and women and everything in between. So. so cultural change has been reflected in who plays the game rather than, I would say, D&D affecting culture. Probably, yeah. Yeah, because the one thing I'd say D&D has affected culture is look at the quality of world building now in science fiction and mm. fantasy. Novel after novel after novel after novel has pretty good world building. And I have to wonder if the foundations of that world building comes out of everyone's experience of Dungeons and Dragons or something like it, where just the ideas of putting a cohesive world together with you know, some solid pieces at the centre to build around has sort of been normalised in people's head who are interested in fantasy and science fiction. I'd say so. Absolutely. And, you know, there are, there are a whole raft of, um, of um, you know, books, uh, films, TV shows that started out as people's... Dungeons and Dragons campaigns mm. that they eventually novelized or wrote scripts for, and um, and uh, and the stories took off um, took off that way. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, people's Dungeons and Dragons games are a, are a testing bed for the um, uh, for their kind of uh, story based ideas. Mm. For me, is so magical about Dungeons and Dragons and what you touched on before, David. Um, when I first had Dungeons and Dragons pitched to me, I was working with a guy, and he was saying. It's like a computer game, except none of the doors are sealed off. Every door in the world is a door that you can get through somehow. Mm, yeah. 
and instead of using the computer as the um, as the driver of the uh, driver of the world, it's you know a person's mind. Yeah, which is a much better thing to draw everyone in. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah. And for uh, for those listeners who who aren't so familiar, normally you'll have a party of adventurers, four or five adventurers, or, or something in that um, in that number, and then you have one person who sits there and they control all of the world and all of the villains and nefarious things and and other people that you'll encounter during your adventure. And they're typically called a dungeon master or a game master. And they're there basically as the engine through which the players navigate the world and uh, and elements come up. And basically, um, you use dice to determine whether or not you can do things. So if I go up to a, a, a door that seems like it's locked, I say to the dungeon master, I'd like to try and unlock that door, please. The dungeon master will say, we'll roll a dice. And it's normally a 20-sided dice, and the number that you get on that, how high it is, will determine whether or not you can open that door. So you can really do anything in these Dungeons & Dragons worlds, and that's what's so fantastic about it. In a strange sense, it it made me think of choice theory with William Glasser in the episodes we've done. It Mm. teaches people they have choice but not free will. Mm. You can choose to do a lot of things, but... Yeah, the roll of the dice will tell you whether you get to have a go now or you have to circle back later. So it encourages you to make decisions and to take action, but you don't have any guarantee that you'll get what you want. So it's an interesting combination of it encourages a bit of courage, but you've got no guarantee that your courage will you know, leave you intact as a character or cooked. That's true. That's true. There's a um, there's a small phrase from a group uh, called Critical Role. I'm not sure if you're familiar, Peter. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, Matt Mercer likes to say you can certainly try mm-hmm. to uh, anyone saying, "Oh, can I do this? Can I do that?" And yeah, indeed, you can certainly try. You may not be able to succeed, but go ahead and try. Yeah, and and the and in trying to complete your objective, whatever the objective is, you really do have to think. And the more creative you're thinking the more kind of expansive you're thinking, the easier it is. So if you've got a you've got a door and you want to try and bash it down, well maybe you could bash it down on a roll of an 18, a 19, or a 20. You know, it's a sturdy door. But then there's a guard nearby, a very uh, a kind of distracted looking guard, and you've got a delicious cake in your pocket. And maybe this guard might actually lend you his key more readily than you could knock the door down. So uh, these adventures are really about that lateral thinking, thinking of other ways to approach adventures. And in, in all the games that I've run, my players constantly surprise me with the brilliant solutions that they have to the scenarios that I provide. So who needs to be more creative, the game master or the people in the That's adventure party? That's a great party? question. Well, that's a good question. I think, I think everyone, everyone benefits from being really, um, really inventive. I mean, it depends on whether or not you want to use one of these wonderful pre-packaged worlds mm. that, um, that, that um, is it Wizards that do it? Wizards of, Wizards the, Coast? of the Coast, yeah. Other publishers that, uh, that Wizards have put out, and those are fantastic if you want to jump into a game. And, and get people already... to understand how everything works exactly. before you then want to do it all yourself. Exactly. So again, much better to be guided through by people's 40 years of experience. Mm. Well, to, to speed up your own development. You say that. I, as an observer, as someone who has played one one-shot game, so mm. the least experience at the table, um, and most fascinated by the kinds of campaigns where people make up the entire world and story. Because uh, as someone who maybe doesn't, engaged necessarily with the functions of the game but finds it really interesting it's the the kind of creativity that they show 
as as game masters, mm-hmm. as people who design the campaigns, and even the, their adaptiveness. Uh, I would say, you know, maybe each player benefits from being creative equally but i would say that the the game master as an observer uh, again uh, well again that was my thought from what mm. i remember is that if you've got a really if a game master is very comfortable in their own skin it was always fun mm. yeah mm. if a game master was nervous or thought they had to follow some sort of predetermined set of rules to too great an extent it kind of shut the universe down a bit so it seems to me that until someone feels pretty experienced being guided through a world that is bigger than their current state of confidence is probably a good thing. Oh, totally. In terms of, um, but that's a good point about the game is it has a really high ceiling of experience or um, how how good you can make it because you can start out absolutely doing those guided um, kind of campaigns or finish up being, you know, this amazing storyteller where you Mm. can invent an entire lore. Yeah, Mm. that's that's what I did for my last game. And Mm. um, for anyone who hasn't sat down and tried to kind of write a universe or write a write a fictional world before, it gets really big really quick because you think, okay, all right, where are we? We're in front of an inn. That's easy, an inn. What does the inn look like? Yeah, what kind of inn? Oh, it looks like it's got volcanic stone walls. Ooh, volcanic stone. And then you're like, well, where does the volcanic stone come from? Well, I suppose there's a lot of volcanic activity in the area and, and that's where they got the stone from. And you're like, oh, wait, why is there volcanic activity in the area? What's the tectonic formation of the region? What, what? How was the world created? Do the continents move? What, what, was it created by gods or are we talking a more naturalistic evolution of a planet? And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger in kind of like a butterfly effect way. Every small decision that you make in creating a fictional world is tied to the very uh, largest macro scale kind of realities of it. And it is excellent fun and if this type of thing thinking about the type of world that you would create is getting you excited right now listening to this i can really encourage you maybe get a few friends together and create a little uh, little scenario of your own it's excellent excellent fun because they're really just fun thought experiments mm. in some ways right mm-hmm. I, I tom and i were, were talking before the recording and i i think the thing that i most like about it is it's a safe simulation space where people can it's safe to fail yes it's safe to fail yeah, and so you we can need try as many out. safe to fail spaces in the world for growing as possible absolutely because yep. you can try and be someone who you're not you can mm. try and develop a relationship with someone who in, like with with a with a character that mm. re- in some ways resembles someone in your life who you don't have a good relationship with right mm. so there are all of these kind of synthetic kind of simulations that mm. you can draw real life experience from mm-hmm. without actually having the, any of the risk yeah, yeah exactly and and that that part is particularly bizarre a, a good friend of mine um uh, pointed out to me and i think it's a really accurate observation everybody's first D character that they create is a lot like them it's a lot like them <laughs> but but then fantastically their next their subsequent characters they start to they start to experiment more. Try things on. They start to try yeah. things on. And just in the way that you were talking about, Tim, it is actually them, in a way, exercising maybe some less dominant parts of their own personality or of their own interests in this safe setting. Mm. Completely agree. My my first character was a, uh, a rogue named Ren P.I., mm. uh, P.I. standing for private investigator. And I'm a pretty uh, reserved kind of guy. I wouldn't do anything that Ren would do. 
Uh, but, but Ren's really good for you for that reason. Exactly. He was yeah. a great outlet. He was kicking yeah. indoors and taking stuff off of like the poli- <laughs> uh, chief of police's desk kind of thing and yeah. rubbing it in his face. Yeah. It's quite the different experience to live that life than the, you know, the one I live. The Bruce Willis of rogues. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He's looking for that icicle going, there's an eyeball somewhere. I've got the icicle. Now where's the eyeball? <laughs> It's interesting. I think there are a lot of stereotypes. You know, we've mentioned rogue now, and these are words that are so associated to nerd culture. Mm -hmm. And it, and I can see how from the outset that might be off-putting until, and and maybe that's why. um, I don't know how much I'm going to gender stereotype here, but maybe that's why it didn't have such a female uptake in the beginning. But um, I think that may have very much been a cultural thing. That again. Teenagers in the 80s from the experience of being there, <laughs> the gender differences were monumental because society had said they should be. Yeah. Mm. And when society says they should be, it takes time to break that. And I think I remember two female friends in year 12 who happily played Dungeons & Dragons with the guys, but they were seen as outcasts to the girls. The guys thought they were awesome mm. Yeah, because they were happy just coming. And one of them was a brilliant artist, so she would end up just starting to draw things mm. from the game out of her imagination, which would then blow everyone away. And I think we're like starting to see that fascination or um, like almost fetishization of women as like gamer girls starting to fade out of relevancy just now. So I'm really yeah, we've, we've got enough now that it's not wow anymore. It's just is. It's sort of equalizing. Which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and people still exploit that. Don't get me wrong. It yeah. still mm-hmm. exists, but yeah. Um, all, all I can say for, for someone who might still be interpreting like these kind of strange worlds that at a low resolution kind of resemble Lord of the Rings, it, it's, it, it, is, it has something for everyone. Um, I, as someone who doesn't play, I would absolutely advocate that. So Well, again, the thing is you're adventuring. You're trying to work something out. You're trying mm-hmm. to solve a puzzle or understand something that's not clear at the beginning. That can end up with as much violence in it or not Mm-hmm. essentially as the, the game master wants to put in. I'm quite sure you could go down a path of infinitely less violence and more puzzle solving. It's just historically people don't have an outlet for large amounts of aggression, so rolling high numbers to clobber things is fun. Or at least it was when I was a teenager. It may have changed. I mean, you can run things. like This is where I love the, the possibilities of it because you could run a, 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 an actual pacifist game yeah yeah you could build a build a world in which you solve problems and you know, create a, a, a civilization and you know make yeah. the world a better place where conflict is resolved by intense consensus. dance battles oh yeah. okay oh, consensus and talk. Yeah. <laughs> i was thinking uh, interpretive dance but yeah, yeah. you know um, yeah sorry i opted out of that because like, how am i going to score it <laughs> all i hear is feet going clunk 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 <laughs> they could just be banging their head on the ground well, that is a form of interpretive dance, I suppose. Yeah, I think I've seen that one. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's really, really an amazing time. We should get a game going, everyone. I, I feel like that would be uh, well, really interesting. And record it while we do it. Yeah, well, it, there's a, an absolute culture of of because Dungeons and Dragons, as you know, being accessible to someone uh, to 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 um to blind people like you, David also means that the game translates extremely well to podcasts. Mm. Precisely. Um, so there are, there's a good library um, for people. That, yeah. that, I, I, you you guys may be able to suggest uh, more than, than I could. Um, a good library if you uh, Well, I was interest. looking the other day. There's an iOS app called Dungeons and Such, which seems to have everything in it a blind person needs to play D&D. Wow. Oh, wow. All in one app. I didn't have a chance to have a look 
because I'm like, I don't need to get any more distracted than I already am today. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just going to go down a rabbit hole. But the point is, it sounds like you can go down the rabbit hole, which is mm. awesome. It's a very deep rabbit hole, definitely. And, and the fact that, you know, even on my iPhone, I don't even remember why I put it on there, but it's a roller dice app on your phone. So yeah, I can tell yeah. it what dice and tell it to roll, and it just reads me the number. Oh, that's awesome. That's, and that's I think I need. put it on there because I was trying to, you know, do some random thing for the random impact on counterinsurgency. I was doing some security thing. Mm -hmm. So I was actually using it to explain Iraq with randomness. It was really yeah. weird. I mean, wouldn't it be a really cool teaching tool for, like, international relations, like a like actual diplomatic... Well, I suppose in a sense diplomacy is mm. the set in the real world with the pretense of being real-world diplomats. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, I think because the world is the world we're in, more or less, just a historical version, it doesn't then make people want to be creative enough or try to be very different to they currently are. Right. You know, imagination, I think, is the first step of freeing people to be more. You know, mm. Take a risk because you don't live there. Mm. In, and that's what's so fascinating about Dungeons and Dragons is that we, at some point in our childhood, maybe, uh, you know, around uh, seven or eight or something, we kind of stop using our imaginations collaboratively. Mm. Well, uh, no, we don't stop. School says sit the fuck down yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and look forward and do what the grown-up tells you. We have it beaten out of us. <laughs> yes. And, Let's um, be honest. It wasn't that we, we gave it up. It was gradually stripped away, and we tried to defend what we could. I mean, the like our prefrontal cortex grows also, like it develops, and like that's a inhibitor mm. to those kinds. Yeah, of but things. playfulness yeah. is right. something that you maintain if you choose to, and, or let the system take away from and you. Imaginative co-creation. Yeah, and and what what is so brilliant about Dungeons and Dragons is the dice and the rule set are really actually minimal yeah. compared to the input of the people. What it is mm. is the dice is a way to. Make the decision. Yeah, try and assuage adults' anxieties about imaginative co-collaboration and sitting down and be like, oh, what if we did this? Oh, what if that was like this? And, you know, imagine if we could do this. You know, it's the, the dice is the vehicle for people to, uh, 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 yeah, to, to stop nervous adults from getting too self-conscious about the fact that they're using their imaginations for the first mm. time in, in 20 years. And if you have, again, I'm thinking in terms of the IBM personality matrix, but if you have a controller in the group who has to dominate, it's harder to dominate if it relies on dice throw. Mm. They can mm. try and dominate, but thankfully the dice will open up opportunities to essentially take some of their power back, mm. you know, get your power back away from them. Mm. Well, that's Which, true. I think it also kind of takes away, um, like we were talking about consequence and uh, you know of actions, in that if you're having a really bad session, you're just throwing a bunch of dice and none of them are landing. You get, you're getting like twos, threes, and your character just cannot do, uh, cannot do anything right. Mm. That's just, you know, the roll of the dice that day. Mm. That's not you being bad at your job, for example, or being a bad no. person or failing at social interactions. That's just how it's landed. And it's the advantage of that safe to fail. Exactly. It makes your performance in the game really bad. But if the rest of the group are doing reasonably well, mm. if you're able to switch to, I'm still getting dragged along, my character's not dead... <laughs> This is still fun. We're still in a point of co-creation and imagination. And I want to know what happens next, even though I don't think I'm going to be playing a very big part of it. Mm. So recognizing that just being a part of something a bit bigger than you that is about imagination and growth you know, can make up for, oh, another two. <laughs> now, this is, this is um, kind of brushed against something that I've been really fascinated with uh, for some time. Uh, studying psychology, we've been learning about the different... Uh, ways that uh, reinforcement um, uh, kind of uh, makes people interested in something. 
if you get reinforced all the time, really consistency, uh, consistently, it's actually not that appealing. But if you get intermittently reinforced, if you get an intermittent positive result, it has more impact. It's re- yeah. it is it is it is the way well, it explains. Um, it is the most addictive right. uh, term yeah. of uh, form of reinforcement. So that explains gambling. Yeah. It explains gambling. Yeah. Well, uh, and based on what Tim and I are reading at the moment, where we're both reading the dawn of everything, the idea of schismogenesis. Yeah. That if you know, you're interacting with the same thing all the time, mm. by very nature, you will be the opposite to it. <laughs> it won't have a positive impact. It even, it even explains um, uh, kind of strained relationships, maybe kind of more abusive, intermittent relationships. The fact that the affection comes intermittently makes it far more... Uh, Makes it far more desirable mm. and addictive in a Worth weird while. way. Yeah, but um, and that's where we loop back to dice games. I'm thinking, has is the proliferation of dice games just a factor of that phenomenon that you get an intermittently positive result? Everyone, no matter what their capability is, is on the same playing field, and everyone's getting that buzz. So every player, <laughs> no matter their skill, might still get lucky at the dice. Yeah. I wonder if it's a dopamine reset. Yeah, or it could be. Like literally because instead of just going, I want to do this thing that I like time and time again, and you can, Mm. suddenly there's ups and there's downs. So in a sense when it is good, you get the buzz again. So I wonder if it's really healthy for setting dopamine levels. Hmm. There you are. There's your honest thesis. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, people roll those dice whenever they log on to their Facebook news feed, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, but the problem is that no, we don't. Because we know Facebook knows exactly what they want to do to us. Well, yeah, but I, but then you be, it's like you become increasingly normalized to it. So it's yeah, to what they want to do to you. <laughs> yeah. So it's exactly what Peter's saying. If you know what you're going to get every time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like your know, meta is having a meta effect. <laughs> but I'm fascinated by the fact that it's like addictive. Yeah. It's it. Um, Somehow makes it sound less attractive. Well, creativity, creativity is addictive, but right. most people have forgotten it because how often are they allowed for several hours in a row with a group of people to continue to stay in a creative flow state? Mm. And, you know, that's the, the popularity of these games in recent years. For everyone who, who might not be aware, these type of games, physical games, board games, role-playing games, mm. gone back up dramatically. Huge mm. resurgence. Mm. And I think it is because people are getting, uh, you know, a bit worn out with the same kind of um, video games that are becoming quite formulaic, that are <laughs> that are quite um, alienating in a lot of ways. And I think people are kind of coming back to, oh, wouldn't it be great? We have some beer, we have some pretzels, we sit around a dark room and we imagine that we're elves and wizards. How often do you get that that kind of really divergent and creative video game anymore? Like a, a lot of what sells is almost, yeah. yeah, like you said, formulaic. Yeah. I wonder too if, again, if I look back at the 80s, music was the biggest thing for teenagers unless mm. you were a serious sports person mm. in the 80s. Music now is not something everyone does and music takes a lot of time to get good enough to make music. Mm-hmm. So creativity and flow state in music is a very big investment and you won't necessarily run into 100 people now who share it with you. Mm. Yeah. Where something like gaming is, I think, the closest thing to the same level of creativity and flow state that you can get there faster with a group of people who are also new. Mm. So we've found a, a different way to get the same buzz we need based on you know, what society's done to itself. 
I think there's a few more factors as well. I think, like you were saying, not many people these days get the opportunity to sit down for, or at least have an excuse to sit down for three, sometimes four or five hours with a group of friends mm. and collectively, you know, achieve or accomplish a task. So I think there's that valuable social interaction that we as humans uh, mm. need. And, you know, despite the connectivity that we have these days uh, are sometimes without there's that, but there's also, it's that um, episodic formula that we have had on TV for a long time. Mm. They want to know, or we want to know, the players want to know what happens next. Mm. And the only way to do that is by showing up playing. and playing the game. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Which is awesome because it says it can't all be over now. Yeah. And you have to come back and be ready to participate again. Mm. Yeah. Which even is if, great. Yeah. Even if it is over for that particular session. Mm you could make another choice and open up a completely different set of doors to explore yep. and do something I, else. I like that, and Tom and I were having a conversation about this in a completely different context earlier today, but I like that there is an obligation for the social interaction because it's like, oh, look, you know, the rest of our party, the four out of five or whatever it is, are going to catch up. So, like, you know, you better be there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So uh, for the quiet person in the room who may never organize something, the fact they're part of the group means... They don't have to organize something, which is not their nature to do. Mm. But as long as they keep turning up, they will keep being socially connected. Which, again, even if I look back at the friends I played D&D with in the 80s, there was always at least one person there who was there to make up the numbers, did a good job, but they never would have organized it. Mm. Mm. And it did them a world of good to be included and dragged along. Now I want to browse the um, the uh, psychological literature about using D&D as a therapy for social anxiety Ooh. and social problems. Man, you've got an honest thesis out of this episode and we're all getting a thank you and the acknowledgement. I mean, <laughs> I, it feels pretty big. I mean, like, not, so it feels like it could be much larger than even an honest thesis. I mean, I'm sure. Maybe you've got to start somewhere. You've totally. got to convince them to let you stick around and then to get money. Oh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. There's Everyone no pay Peter. There's no ka-ching <laughs> until the first thesis. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, sh I'm sure there is uh, like literature. It's, bound it's to been be literature been by long now. enough. Absolutely, I, I would imagine that there is. Um, and um, I, I suppose what would be interesting is, is if you could kind of make that a bit more, um, turn that into more of a, uh, an applied therapeutic type of form that mm. you could roll out in the classroom, that you could mm. do in small groups of maybe special need uh, children. Um, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's stuff out there, but um, yeah, I really want to peruse that now. That sounds really fascinating. Mm. So we know what he's going to come and tell us about next year when he's, <laughs> he's done his honest thesis on it. So is it normal in the current era to paint miniatures? That was a big thing for some of my friends in the eighties to be painting the, you know painting their little figurines. It's getting more and more normal. Big companies like uh, Games Workshop yeah. are certainly kind of leading the way um, with that. We're getting into we're getting into kind of really bizarre stuff. It's such a bizarre hobby when you get into tabletop miniature wargaming, which, by the way, started out in eighteenth um, century kind of um, uh, Central Europe, in the courts of um, you know the uh, Austro-Hungarian you know empire and things like that. That's where it first started. It off. really does sound like the thing the Prussians would have done to turn eight-year-olds into junior officers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. they would um, yeah. create these large, large topographical, um, you know, undulating battlefields mm. in the middle of their uh, stately palaces or, or what have you, and they would play miniature wargaming on there. And that was the origin of the mm. of the of what we would recognize today as as modern miniature wargaming. But it's a bizarre hobby. 
because you've got the role playing aspect, you've got the kind of the the the, the stats and the numbers kind mm. of aspect. You've got the modeling, actually crafting and and sculpting the miniatures a little bit, changing them up, you know, whatever. Mm. You've got painting them, and then you've actually got playing the game. And you know, people have varying levels of interest with it in various um, different kind of parts of the hobby. But it's uh, it's a super super well, engaging. The nice thing is you don't have to do all of those bits. No, you can do whatever bits do suit whatever you. Bit. Yeah. So I, I remember in the eighties that as I was starting to play guitar, so to me that that was then I was hooked in my flow state. What other people did was then their problem. But I remember some of my friends I'd played D and D with then moved on to Warhammer and Warhammer forty k. Yeah. Where do they fit? Were they in a sense an evolution of the ideas or just a different universe? And are they still going strong? Warhammer, I know, is still is still going strong. Yeah, okay. uh, I would yeah. say it's not experienced, at least to my knowledge, the resurgence or the gain in popularity that D and D Fifth Edition has. Okay. It, but it's not had that cultural moment of uh, Stranger Things okay. or Critical Role, mm, uh, yeah. to my knowledge, kind of thing. I, I think it's coming up. Um, um, mm. But um, well, the barrier, to, like the financial barrier to entry, is much oh, higher. Oh, it's yeah, because so, it was all about, from what I can remember, like. Anyone who got into Warhammer or 40K was painting huge numbers of miniatures. Oh, yeah. And it was almost returning to that sort of Prussian, you know, 19th century thing of, you know, let's build the Crimean coast and off we go. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. No, it's yeah. a ridiculous investment. Um, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> foolish. No, but there have been... There has how been many a... space marines have you painted? I, I don't want to talk about how many space marines I've painted um, on the record. Um, but... <laughs> There are you don't have to spend oodles and oodles of money and paint forever uh, mm. to get into tabletop miniature wargaming. There's plenty of other systems out there mm. at, yeah. at the moment. There's a uh, Malifaux. There's uh, oh, what are some other ones? Uh, Malifaux. There's a bunch of other ones. So is Malifaux an acronym or a name? No, I think it's actually a name. Okay. I think it's uh, anyway. But uh, there's a bunch of systems that are kind of smaller games with just a couple of pieces aside that you can that you can uh, look into if you're if you're interested in it. And with the proliferation and and kind of technological advances in 3D printing and mm. how cheap oh, that's yeah. becoming, what I reckon what will end up happening yeah. is that people will print their own minis. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Having basically decided how to morph the posture even before they print it. Yeah, yeah. Because oh, it happens yeah. now, but it's yeah. it's like almost like. People don't start out buying a 3D printer and then painting minis, but I no, imagine that, that it's will one of those things happen. that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. There are there are some small uh, smaller games at the moment that have done that. So you know, it's digital rules. You get the uh, what are they called? Are they called STLs? Are those the 3D um, printable files? I think they're called STLs. There you go. You've got the STLs and you get it all digitally. You print it out on your own machine. You know, you might print and a couple of pages go. from the rulebook and you're good to go. Yeah. Um, but you know. When you compare that to D and D, you can see why D and D has been so successful. Because you can always go back to the bare bones and a group of friends. And again, the, the person who gets really addicted will be painting fifty space marines by oh, yeah. next year. But that's a whole other issue. That's a whole other issue. <laughs> yeah. But all all you need is one uh, game master who knows the rules. You need, you, a, you need a D twenty, and that's maybe a maybe a, a, a pencil and a bit of paper. But then you're good to go. And that I think is why we're never going to see, probably never going to see another game system surpassed D&D &D mm. in terms of popularity. I would hope now too that one of the big things that's changed is there's people my age with their kids are now playing and the parents go, oh, that's cool, not realising that maybe it was still a thing. Mm. So to have parental su support rather than parental scepticism, mm. I remember so many of my friends in the 80s, their parents were highly sceptical that this had any value. Yeah. Sitting in the dark pretending to be a wizard. Have you seen there's like 
organized religion documentaries about or like dramatizations about how D and D is oh, yeah. devil worshiping. Yeah, but again, yeah. I remember all that from the eighties, like public yeah. service announcements, literally. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I think uh, the D and D creator um, was it uh, Gary Gygax. Um, he was a Jehovah's Witness, oh, and they, they I think they excommunicated. I was going to wow. say they would not have tolerated making an alternate universe. They did. Yeah. They did not like it. Um, you know, uh, there were, it, it, and it's kind of weird the the discourse that we've had around um, um, media and its influence on people. You know, there was the moral panic about D and D. There was the moral panic about video games, and mm. those have kind yeah, they of, just rolled into each other. It's yeah. like a whole generation of hippie parents forgot they were stoned out of their mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, dude, your kids aren't on drugs; they're just playing games. They're actually using imagination rather than trashing neurons. Give mm. them a break. I want to ask about some of the popular, uh, what I, I guess some of your popular media experiences are of D and D, just so that if there are people out there who um, haven't uh, uh, gotten into it or sort of don't quite understand it, they can gleam some understanding from that and, and kind of get a sense of whether they'll be interested or not. As much as I would um, tell people to just go and try it anyway, um, it may be that they need a little kickstart. So, um, any favorite podcasts or? Well, the number one that comes to mind is Critical Role, uh, headed up by Matt Mercer. He is uh, the DM. Uh, I think it's five or six people playing, but they're all voice actors, professional voice actors. Mm. So a big part of the game is obviously role playing and pretending. So they turn it into theatrical ad lib. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh wow! To, to, what to a to the highest way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've got like like teams. Like a, a whole studio. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, really, really good. Um, so the production quality is insane. The character, you know, development, the story, the acting, because it is at that point basically professional acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all on point. Um, really, really entertaining. I will say the barrier to entry is maybe a commitment thing because the first season is each episode is like three, four, five hours long. There's a lot. And there's yeah. over 100 episodes in the first season. So it is a time commitment mm. to do that, but don't yeah. let that put yeah, you half off. Half hour a day, you know, when you get, you know, doing the exercise or something. There's yeah. going to be a way around it. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. don't have to pay attention the whole time either. You know? No, because again, you can just ease in and out depending how excited mm. they sound. Exactly, mm. and it's all up on YouTube, so you can uh, you can just search that on YouTube, yeah. Critical Role, and uh, and check it out and see if you see if you enjoy. Oh no! Now I'm thinking we have four <laughs> podcasters who are good with microphones and like the idea of D and D. How it starts, you know. <laughs> we could have uh, we could uh, do it live online and have the uh, the audience be their own character and vote on uh, oh, what that character does. Oh, this is going to get really involved. Isn't yeah, it? that would that be would, really cool. That's why I was pushing for this podcast. I yeah. knew, I knew <laughs> nerds would get sucked in. Well, again, I have no problem with anything that brings people together and makes them be creative. Yeah, that that's always a win, and you use whatever tool. Music was a great tool. It always will be. But the barrier to entry is finding people who want to do the deep dive and the long-term commitment. Mm, yeah. I, will, I will say on that, even if you don't have any friends that you know that would be into that, you might be the odd one out that is interested in something that's you know kind of thought of as a bit more nerdy. Still take the plunge and look. There's uh, Reddit forums, I think r slash LFG, which is a kind of like looking for a game yeah. uh, that posts with a location tag. You can search for your city or the type of game that you're looking for, uh, there's that. There's also Roll20, that is a more digital version. If you're not looking to meet up online, you can find a Discord server. And that's uh, probably a great way for people to start because, again, they can then decide if they really like it and start bugging their friends. Exactly, yeah, yeah you rope them in and that's how it grows. Yeah, because oh, you, yeah. you know enough to potentially then be Game Master because you've learned just enough from bumbling along 
to have a go and they go, wow, our friend learned something and wants to share. Yeah, and then the cycle continues, you know, they they the DM for another game and then they yeah. rope in more people and then, you know, 8 billion people later, we're all just living in imagination. Land. Yeah, I, the difficulty starts to become that you really only want like five players as like a maximum to, yeah, like you almost have too many people wanting to participate. Well, exactly. That would be a lovely, lovely problem to have. Exactly, yeah. And and I, I guess it's a time commitment. The thing that I and maybe listeners at this point, you know, I've done we've done all this work of trying to convince you to get into it. And why am I not into it? My wife is into it. Like she plays with Tom. Um, they play in a, a group of six, three, three women, three men. And uh, why, why am I not playing as well? I, the only thing that I kind of feel I can't commit myself to is the weekly commitment. Right. It is because uh, it, it is a bit of a time commitment and I am too flaky, I think. Um, <laughs> At but, least you provided an honest answer because so many people would go, I can't commit the time, but then wouldn't find a real answer. Mm. It's If you like it enough, you'd find the time. Yeah. You like being around while they're doing it, but you like being able to wander off and do something else too. That is, that so is exactly It's fun enough that wandering in and out is awesome, yeah. but you're not sure you want to sit for that long. It's effectively it. Whereas I'm, if we connected it to drinking some very peaty Scottish, you know, Scottish whiskey, yeah. how excited would you get? Uh, mm. Yeah, absolutely. Cause, well, because then my point would be that I'm around friends and we're drinking peated whiskey, whiskey and, and playing, then we're also so, playing d yeah. So we know that this is going to be based around an Ardbeg 10-year-old. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. So th- there's, you know, and obviously, well, we were talking about doing it on a podcast. I'm into podcasting. That so then podcast, the point Ardbeg 10-year-old and a D&D game. <laughs> yeah. Great day. I mean, it feels and pizza. like we're fulfilling a little bit of a cliche in doing it. Don't care. Day. Okay. <laughs> Anyone who's got a problem, go away. Good. All right. Excellent. I have, in asking some of my friends whether they wanted to uh, appear on the podcast or comment on it, it might nice be event. might be a bit mundane, but there's typically, I think, three pillars considered mm. as... Uh, you know, structurally integral to the game of D&D, and that is exploration, combat, and is it social encounters? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so usually people enjoy one or maybe two of those the most. You might find someone that loves exploring the world, loves talking to all these crazy people with weird and wacky voices if you have an enthusiastic DM, but they don't really like the combat, the turn-based sort of, mm. what do I do now? How yeah. can I, you know, kill this person? How do I maim that dude? Yeah. <laughs> exactly, it's mm. a hard decision to make. So no, perhaps... actually, it was always really easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Uh, I mean, a good question to ask might be, what's their favorite pillar of D&D or what, do they, what aspect of those do they like the most? Because that's going to help build a group of people to play together. I would imagine if you have some idea, you know, do people align well on those three pillars or not? I mean, sometimes even having the tension of having them not align is also... Yeah, but that's fun too, but knowing that's either what you're building or avoiding... Totally. ...would be really good. Well, in which case, we'll throw it over to um, some people who have sent in what their favourite pillars are so that you, uh, our lovely audience, can gain an appreciation of common everyday players. G'day, audience. It's Tim from Editing Bay. We managed to hear from three people from Tom's Dungeons & Dragons party... We will be hearing from Courtney Starling first up, then Kate Ross, and then coincidentally, my lovely wife, Jade Whiffen. I think it's hard for me to pick a favourite element of D&D. I'd say probably a split between combat and the social interaction. I think a good campaign has a pretty even split of those elements. And I think if one campaign had only one of those things I wouldn't enjoy it nearly as much and I guess the things I get from playing D&D mainly is creativity and confidence in 
myself and my abilities, no matter what kind of role, whether you're a player or a DM. I think those are the main things I've always found I've gotten from it. That's why I love it. My favourite aspect of D&D is probably the combat, mainly because this is typically where the dice get used the most and really change the course of the story. I think it's fun to kind of not know how it's going to go and have that element of surprise and idea of creating and impacting the story together. The positive effects I get from D&D would probably be connection with others and really building those connections. And I think having a weekly campaign is a great way to have a weekly catch up and see the people you enjoy playing with and care about the most. And I really enjoy the creative aspect of D&D. I think I get a lot of creative satisfaction from being a part of the story and playing D&D. I think my favourite component of D&D would be a tie between social interaction and combat. During combat, you get to roll and you get to make lots of these split decisions and you work a lot with the people you're playing with. You have to work closely and try and work out how you can get the best out of your team. And the social interactions, both in the game and with the people you're playing with, are very enjoyable. A lot of role play comes into it, which is a very creative outlet. The positive effects I get from playing D&D, the social interaction between my friends. It's nice to have that consistent time to catch up with them and all having a joint interest. It's also very creative and I like having that outlet. Peace. Thank you to all of you who sent everything in. It's been a wonderful conversation. Can I ask gents any kind of final comments or points of discussion? I'll start with Peter. Dungeons and Dragons is fantastic because it can include everyone. You can do it with uh, as little equipment as you want. Um, and uh, the adventures can be whatever size you want. It doesn't have to be a big, grandiose Lord of the Rings adventure. You can just simply do it with a tiny little mystery set in one room. You and your companions wake up in a room. There's a table and a vase in the corner, and one window with bricks behind it. It can be as big or as small as you want. So uh, don't get overwhelmed if we've been kind of um, going really grand. You can um, uh, do a little fun thing, you know, uh, sooner than you would imagine. Just have fun with it. If you're interested in it, please check it out. There's a lot of resources and a lot of resources for free out there. So don't feel bad and have a fun time. Mm. Uh, David, uh, coming, kind of coming maybe back into the hobby. Ah. Uh. I, I could be dragged back in, but again, I, I've sort of chosen the path, and the path has six strings. I can be pulled off the six-string path. But you should just be playing a bard, then, it sounds like, playing yeah, music. Yeah, and I could just be happily sitting in the background, you know, doing three-octave arpeggios uh, in between mm. bits. But, no, my thing is, have a go, because collective imagination, collective creation, if you can't experience it in other bits of your life, gaming is a great way to experience one of the best things about being human which is to make something new with other people. Just have a go. And Tom, I apologise for making you follow the profundity. That was incredibly profound. I will only pale in comparison, but I'll give it a, I'll give it a shot. I think there is something for literally everybody in D&D. If you have a really deep wallet and love collecting shiny rocks with numbers on them, you can spend the money and get precious minerals or exotic dice with Roman numerals on them, whatever you like. Or if you just like talking to people in a funny voice, you can do that too. If you like killing goblins, we got plenty of those. There is literally something in it for everybody. You almost kind of owe it to yourself. Can I be mm, so bold? Yes. Wow. So at least give it a try, mm. I would say. 
Well, I think that is an excellent place to end. So thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you, Tom. Pleasure. Thank you, David. Always good to be here. And thank you, Peter. Yep, we're for initiative. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you, audience. Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favorite episodes or leave us a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights or send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Oscast Network. Peace out. <laughs>